of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in episode number 13 of this verse-by-verse study through this early epistle. And the message I'm preaching this morning, I've entitled, The Return of the King. The Return of the King. I'm sure many of you are like me in that you enjoy a good movie. I do not enjoy bad movies, but I do enjoy good movies. And one of the movies that I really enjoy immensely that I've watched many times, even though they're incredibly long, is the Lord of the Rings trilogy based on the novels by J.R.R. Tolkien. The third in that series is where I snag the title for my message. It's called The Return of the King. And that story, that book, that movie chronicles one Aragorn, who is a human being in the captivating characters that make up the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he is going back to Gondor to take his rightful place on the throne. Now, of course, the forces of evil at work in Middle-earth do not want Gondor to take the throne back. And so this movie has one of the most epic battle scenes between the forces of good and evil that you could ever see in the cinema. And I think because Tolkien was a Christian, as was his contemporary and friend C.S. Lewis, and his works all in Narnia, there's incredible overtones and imagery that are incredibly biblical and spiritual in nature. He's no doubt picturing and providing a metaphor of that final battle that will take place between Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven against Satan and all his minions. Well, as we embark over these studies over the next couple of weeks in this section of 1 Thessalonians, we will, in fact, be studying some of the clearest and most descriptive teaching in all the Bible regarding the return of Jesus, regarding the eschaton, the last things, the end times. And I know many of you are probably like me. If you were a child of the 70s, growing up in the church in the 70s, just talking about the end times or Bible prophecy brings all these images up to your mind. I can remember watching in a church like this on a screen set up in the front, A Thief in the Night. Anybody remember seeing that movie in the 70s? Or reading Hal Lindsey's bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth. Or maybe you remember the haunting song, You've Been Left Behind. Anybody remember that song? If you're in the 70s in the church, you heard that song, no doubt about it. Well, this is maybe something that comes in your mind when you start, start talking about Bible prophecies, all kind of charts and timelines that are somewhat confusing. But I would particularly like you to consider this fact as we embark on this study over the next several weeks. There are good and godly men, Bible-believing men and women, who firmly hold to the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture that when it comes to the minutia of eschatology, when it comes to the the nitty-gritty details of the end times, they see things differently. They, They arrive at different conclusions. For instance, my own family. When we go down to Florida and it's me and my brothers and my dad sitting around the table talking about the Bible like we always do, there are represented among those four men three different views of the eschaton. (laughs) Among our elders, we've got seven elders. There are three different views on the details of the last things, of the end times. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Because even within those, we all agree that our doctrinal statement, the Baptist faith and message, is broad enough to include all those things. Well, here's the overarching principle I want us to consider as we embark on this study of the last things of the return of Christ over the next several weeks. Look at this next slide. We should keep the plain things the main things. 
And the main things should be those things which are plain. In other words, we're not going to major on the minors. We're not going to get bogged down in all the minutia and the details over which there is some disagreement and misunderstanding, but we're going to look at the main things, which are the plain things, as we study this together. Now, this morning, we're going to read verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4. If you were with us last week, Easter Sunday, we used verses 13 and 14 as our launch pad for the Easter message. We're going to read that because I want us to understand the context of this teaching. We're going to focus in particularly on verse 15 and 16 today in the message. But with your Bible open, look with me at 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13 as I read the Scripture. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And after reading that, we ought to say hallelujah. Because this is an incredible promise of God that we're studying over these weeks to come. Now again, last week we looked at verse 13 and 14, and and the root and the heart of his teaching there is that Jesus died and was resurrected. And we saw that last week. Now, it's apparent, as as reading this, you kind of got to read between the lines here, why was the Apostle Paul writing these things to them in this way? If you go back and read Acts chapter 17, the history book of the New Testament, you'll discover this is when the Apostle Paul made his way into the city of Thessalonica. And there as he's preaching, he's going into the synagogue on three successive Sabbaths, and we see many people coming to faith in Christ after the third Sabbath, and he's declaring Jesus as their Messiah. He's kicked out of the uh, synagogue. Now, we don't know how much longer he was actually in the city until a riot ensued, and he was kicked out of the city. So he may have been there four, five, six weeks tops, But in that time, no doubt, these new believers, many coming to faith in Christ, the Apostle Paul gave them a crash course in basic Christianity. And a fundamental part of basic Christianity is we have a blessed hope. We believe Jesus is coming again. But there's no way he could have answered all their questions or responded to all the different details that may have come up in that teaching. So he's writing this letter here specifically to answer some questions. And the question that seems to be on their mind is, okay, what about Christians in this fledgling church who have died? What about those who are no longer with us? When Jesus comes back, and we believe he is, when he comes back, are they going to miss it? Are they going to miss out on the glorious kingdom that God will establish through his son Jesus when he comes to sit on his glorious throne? And so are they going to miss out on the promise of resurrection? And so he says, yes, we grieve. But no, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And again, the fundamental and foundational principle for this teaching is verse 14. We believe Jesus died and rose again. This we believe. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins 
And on the third day, he was resurrected from the dead. This is a 100% fact. And because this is true, we also believe that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will resurrect the dead. All who have died, all who are in their graves, those who have already passed, who are in Christ, will be resurrected and raised to the everlasting kingdom that Jesus will establish. So springing forth from what would certainly be a very settling and comforting truth and an answer to their question, what about those people who have died? He then uses that as a springboard to give some other fascinating and frankly the most detailed instruction in all the Bible regarding the return of Jesus. And this morning from just verses 15 and 16, I want us to consider three specific truths that emerge from those two verses. The first one is this. Number one, his coming is from declared authority. His coming, the return of Jesus, is from declared authority. Paul establishes the basis of authority for all that he's going to teach over the next uh, chapter of the Bible. Namely, it is, quote, a word from the Lord. A word from the Lord. That's authority. Somebody says, I got a word from the Lord. Well, you can question that. When an apostle of Jesus says, this is a word from the Lord, you can take it to the bank. This is authoritative. Now, it could possibly be that Paul is delivering this information as a, quote, word from the Lord, because as an apostle, he was given divine insight into spiritual truth. He was Holy Spirit inspired to to write scripture. So this, quote, word from the Lord may be referring to that. But here's what I think he's referring to. I believe what Paul is referring to here as a word from the Lord is the very teaching of Jesus when he was on the earth himself. See, there's a section in our synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that record what's known as the Olivet Discourse. After the Holy Week, whenever Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple, after that he takes just his disciples, just the closest 12. He takes them up onto the Mount of Olives, and he begins to answer their questions, and he gives incredible teaching about the eschaton, about the end times, about his return, about his setting up his kingdom. So you find that in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21, and the most extensive teaching or record of Jesus's teaching is actually meticulous Matthew, the tax collector. If you've been watching The Chosen, I love that character if you've been watching that series. The meticulous tax collector Matthew devotes two whole chapters, chapter 24 and 25 of his gospel, to the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' teaching on his return. And what Matthew records there is a word in Matthew 24 and 25 that Paul uses here in 1 Thessalonians 4, a word many of you have probably heard before. It's the word parousia. Parousia. How many have heard this word before, being in church? Yeah. It simply means this. Coming. Coming. But in particular, in first century Greek usage, in the life of Matthew and Paul and Peter and James, who all use this word in their epistles and gospels, the word specifically referred to the coming of a dignitary, the arrival, the presence of royalty. And of course, you would anticipate and you would expect when word was coming through your village, hey, there's going to be a parousia. Well, you know that that parousia, that arrival of a dignitary of royalty would be accompanied with certain fanfare and certain pomp and circumstance. This is the arrival. This is the coming. There would be an expectation to that. This is the word Paul uses, and it's the word that Matthew uses, Peter uses it, James uses it to describe 
the coming of Jesus. In fact, notice in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, how Paul uses this word there. He says, Christ, the first fruits, it's the first fruit of the resurrection. He was raised first. Then at his parousia, those who belong to Christ. What a comfort. When the royalty comes, those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected to Jesus. James, who wrote the epistle of James, happens to be the half-brother of Jesus, the oldest son of Mary and Joseph together. Notice what he wrote about his brother in James chapter 5. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the parousia, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And most certainly that is what is in view here. And here's the thing. Jesus is the highest of all dignitaries. He's the most royal of all royalty. And we must expect and anticipate that his parousia, his arrival, his coming will have these marks and identifying characteristics of royalty. In fact, notice how Matthew records this authoritative word of Jesus in his record of the Olivet Discourse. Look at Matthew 24, verse 37 through 38, or 39. Matthew writes, For as were the days of Noah, this is the words of Jesus, so will be the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all, the, all away. So will be the parousia of the Son of Man. There is a suddenness that characterizes the return of Christ. There's an instantaneous, sudden impact that happens. People will be going about their daily lives, eating and drinking, giving in marriage. As I was thinking about this, you know, I've done probably 100 weddings in my years as a, as a pastor. And weddings are beautiful, aren't they? And I don't know if you recognize this, but a wedding, as we typically practice it, is, is an incredible imagery of this coming of Jesus. You have the groom who comes from the back, and the bride is coming to meet him at the altar, and there is this meeting of the groom and the bride. It's beautiful imagery of the groom, Jesus, meeting his bride, the church, in the air. And I've wondered sometimes, since Matthew recorded Jesus' words there, you'll be giving in marriage. If what if I'm performing a wedding and down comes the bride, but just before she gets to the altar, here comes the real groom and the marriage is cut off. Think about all that time and effort and money that was spent on that wedding, all for naught. And the groom is going, I missed my honeymoon. Oh, you know. So that, that's just part of it, right? This is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. It's going to be instant. It's going to be unexpected. And it's going to be right in the middle of life as we know it. And the instruction that Paul gives here in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we'll see, carries this word of the Lord authority. came from Jesus. This is his instruction. But here's the second thing I want us to notice. Number two, his coming, his parousia, will have determined priority. Now, he answers the question they were all asking. It was on their minds, what about our loved ones who have died? And he says, those who are left until the coming of the Lord, those who are left alive, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's the response. If you've ever flown commercially, no doubt you've been sitting at the gate and you've heard the gate agent come over the intercom and say something to this effect, we will now begin priority boarding. 
And most assuredly, that does not include a cheapskate like me. I always buy the bargain basement tickets if I'm flying anywhere. I'm not group number one to load. I'm usually group 28. By the time I get on the play, all the overhead compartments are full, and, and i got to sit there with my thing in my lap. So, but you know priority boarding. Those are first-class folks, right? And as you get on, they kind of like look, look up at you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, you, you've been there. Jesus says, and Paul says, there's going to be priority boarding for another flight. And the priority boarding is not we who are alive. The priority boarding for the return of Christ is those who are dead in Christ. Something's going to happen when Jesus comes back. All those who are in Christ who are buried in their graves, they're coming out of their graves. Those who are in tombs, those tomb doors are going to swing open, and they're going to meet the Lord in the air. Think about this. Christian sailors who have been buried at sea for centuries in the bottom of the ocean, they're coming out when Christ returns. This is the promise. There's priority boarding at the return of Christ. The dead in Christ will be raised first. Now, I don't want to get too into this too much because next week we're going to really be looking at this reality of graves opening and the dead being raised. But that's going to lead to our third truth and really where I'll spend the bulk of our time together. Number three, I want us to see from this, these two verses, his coming will possess dramatic clarity. Dramatic clarity. And I just see that's misspelled on the screen. That is not how you spare clarity, okay? <laughs> yeah, clarity. All right. The parousia, the coming of the Lord, will, again, be characterized by, the, by this royal regalia. It'll be characterized by uh, what you would expect with the highest of dignitaries coming with the sights and the sounds and the brilliance and the images of one who is royal. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Interestingly, Jesus' authoritative word on the subject predicted that there would be some who say that his coming would be secretive. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, beginning of verse 24. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And just as Jesus predicted, shocker, he was right. There are religious groups throughout all of Christian history that have come forward and said, Christ has already come back. Christ has returned. There's even some modern-day folks in our day who say this is true. So they put forward this idea that, well, when Christ came back, he has returned, but he's kind of like just come halfway down. This is true. This is what some folks teach today. He's come for what they call an investigative judgment. And here's where they came up with that. You see, they predicted that Jesus would return on a specific date at the beginning of the last century. They predicted he was coming visibly, personally, physically, bodily to set his foot on the earth. And they were wrong. It didn't happen. So they had to amend their prediction. They said, oh, we weren't really wrong. He did come back. He just kind of came halfway down. And now he's just kind of doing this investigative judgment until he comes all the way down. Then there'll be the final judgment. Hogwash. That's baloney. Jesus is drawing a distinct contrast between the false claims of false prophets and the true nature of what his return will actually be like. So when Christ returns, it will not be privately to some monastic community in the wilderness 
When Christ returns, it will not be in some secret inner room to a secret society. When Christ returns, it will not be just known to a select few. Far from it. When Jesus comes back, it will have all the public regalia that a king should have. It will be no doubt unquestionable Christ has returned. It won't be confined to just this compound in the woods of Wyoming. All the earth will know. This world has not experienced anything like what will occur when Jesus returns. There will be this dramatic clarity. And Paul points to two particular aspects in this passage of the dramatic clarity of Jesus' return. I want us to consider from here and also from parallel accounts. First of all, his parousia, his coming, will have unambiguous sights. It'll be visual. We're going to see. In our focal text, Paul says, for the Lord himself, it's personal, it's bodily, it's physical, will descend from heaven. Paul is referencing here again the personal, visible, physical return of Jesus. He will descend from heaven and again will possess sights unlike anything this world has ever seen. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, He's been with his followers, his disciples, made multiple, multiple appearances after the grave. There he is with his followers, and there we have the record of his ascension. And there are the disciples. Kind of like some of y'all at the drone last week, whenever it was flying around the Easter service. (laughs) There they are at the ascension. And what happens? An angel shows up. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing? I would be too, just for the record. This Jesus who you saw, look at what the Bible says in Acts 111. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw. You saw him go into heaven, you're going to see him come out of heaven. It's going to be visible when he descends from heaven. It'll be visible in nature. It's interesting. Jesus gives a couple of analogies in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24 to describe the visible nature of his coming. Look at Matthew 24 at the end of the chapter, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The first analogy he gives is that of lightning flashing in the sky. Growing up in Tampa, Florida, that happens to be the lightning capital of the world. There are more lightning strikes per year in the Tampa Bay area than there are anywhere else in the world. That's why their hockey team is the Tampa Bay Lightning. So it's very common for me as a child growing up, a teenager, young adult, to see thunderstorms, particularly in the summertime, every single day. And it is a incredible phenomenon when the sun is down, the moon may not be in the sky, and all of a sudden lightning flashes in the east, and what does it do? It lights up the whole sky. And this is the picture that Jesus is drawing here. And just like lightning, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be bright. It's going to be incredible. Everyone will know. There will be visible signs of his return. Friend, the rebels against the will of God will know. The unbelievers will know. And we who are alive and remain will know Christ has come back with great suddenness. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Peter uses the word parousia three times in his second epistle to describe the return of Jesus. He mentions the visible, heavenly, climactic signs of his coming. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 12. He says, we're waiting for and hastening the parousia, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Talk about gazing up into the sky. When the sky is on fire, when the moon is melting, when the heavenly bodies are falling, people will know something unique is happening. The next analogy Jesus gives is a curious one. He mentions vultures gathering around a dead carcass. Now, many of us have had this image. Maybe you're driving out in the country and and you see this up in the sky, these dark birds just kind of circling. You know, there's 100%. We know what's happening here. Roadkill, right? They're circling around because there's a dead animal on the road and they're just about to come down and eat lunch. This seems kind of morbid, but it's an obvious axiom or understanding, a, a proverb, if you will. Whenever you see vultures, there's only one conclusion. There's a dead animal. When you see these signs in the heaven, there's only one conclusion. Jesus has come back. Jesus has returned. In the very next verse in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes, not by way of analogy, but precise description what the unambiguous sights of his coming will include. Look at Matthew 24, verse 29 on the screen. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, what will happen? The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. His return will cataclysmically affect the entire natural realm. The sun will be darkened. We don't know if that's a solar eclipse We don't know if if this is a supernova and our sun just kind of ceases to exist. I kind of think Jesus just turns the switch off. The sun, we don't have any need of you anymore. And obviously the moon is a reflective of the sun. If the sun doesn't give off light, neither does the moon. Then what happens? The stars start falling. Think about this. Stars, which are a source for many idolatrous false worship, will fall. Those who have put their hope in the natural order that natural order will be gone. Only those who trust in Christ. Though Christ is rejected by multitudes, there will be no doubt at this moment he rules and he reigns. And there will not be a United Nations meeting in Geneva that can stop the rule of Christ. There will not be a NATO alliance summit in Brussels, Belgium, that will curb his ascension to the rightful throne over the heavens and over the earth. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to rule And he's coming to reign. And those who have scoffed at the gospel, those who have cursed Christ, will laugh no longer. That moment, unimaginable terror will strike their hearts and their minds. Why? Because Christ's parousia will have this dramatic clarity. The incredible sights. Unambiguous sights. But secondly, It will also have unmistakable sounds. Unmistakable sounds. In verse 16, Paul mentions three sounds associated with the coming of Jesus. He says he's coming with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. First, there's the cry or shout 
of command. It has a military ring to it, doesn't it? Guess who the commander of the Lord's army is? Jesus. And when Jesus gives the shout of command, folks, all of his enlisted soldiers fall in line immediately. He gives the shout of command. There's actually a record in the Gospel of John of Jesus doing that, giving the shout of command. It's found in John chapter 11. As his good friend Lazarus has died, he's there buried in the tomb, and Jesus arrives what they think is four days late. And as they're grieving and weeping, and he proclaims to them, I am the name of God. I am the resurrection and the life. He gives them instruction to remove the seal from the tomb. Surely, Lord, he stinketh, King James says. He says, remove it. And notice what Jesus says in John 11, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, a shout, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus gives the cry of command. He gives a shout and the dead are raised to life. Now it's been commented on this passage and I believe it's altogether accurate that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out because if he wouldn't have identified Lazarus, all the graves would have opened because that's the cry of command of Jesus. But he is coming one day and he is going to say, come out with a shout of command and all who are dead in Christ will be raised to new life in Jesus. But there's another unmistakable sound Paul mentions. He says, there's also the voice of the archangel. Now, there's been some debate about who is he referring to here. I personally think it's the archangel that's mentioned in the book of Jude and also in Revelation chapter 12. His name is Michael. In both of those instances, Michael, the archangel, is seen warring with Satan and all the demonic forces of evil. And I think what this is, is Michael's going to give his voice where all the angelic forces are going to have this final battle between the forces of evil and the forces of righteousness and of good. This is the final war. I know some of you in here are professional wrestling, and I hesitate to use the word wrestling to describe that sport. Sports entertainment fans. This weekend was WrestleMania 37. Just like WrestleMania 37, all the matches, the outcomes are predetermined. It's fake, in other words. There's coming a battle. The outcome is predetermined. But it ain't fake. Michael will lead the angels of God and defeat forever and always Lucifer and all his minions. The voice of the archangel. The third sound Paul mentions is the trumpet of God. You know, trumpets are often regarded as the loudest instruments in a marching band or in an orchestra. But can you imagine how loud the trumpet of God is? Absolutely deafening. It will reverberate across the entire planet. The trumpet of God. In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to mark the beginning of Israel's feasts and celebrations with a trumpet blast. They were also used in the Old Testament by the armies of God to assemble people for war or to bring people together or to make a special announcement. 
I think all those things are in view here. In fact, notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 in a parallel passage. He says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. I have no doubt if you were in a nice Sunday afternoon nap and one of our trumpeteers from the Lookout Valley Band of Gold came in your bedroom and blasted the trumpet, it'll wake you up. But the trumpet of God has the power to raise the dead. And that's what's going to happen when these unmistakable sounds that accompany the Lord's return happen. Back in the Olivet Discourse at the end of chapter 24, Jesus also mentions this trumpet Then as you turn the chapter to chapter 25, Matthew, meticulous Matthew, records a parable that Jesus gives there on the Mount of Olives to his closest disciples. It's known as the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And in that parable, he mentions the midnight cry. Here's how the story goes. These ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids are anticipating the coming of the groom. And as they make themselves ready and they prepare themselves for the great wedding feast, those 10 bridesmaids represent 10 supposed disciples of Jesus. And there they are. They're all gathered in the same place. They're all wearing the same garments. They're all there for the same purpose. And they all even have their oil-fueled lamps to light the way on their journey then Jesus puts a little twist in the story. He says half of those bridesmaids, five of the ten, didn't have any oil in their lamps. They had no oil. Therefore, they were not ready. Now, we know in the Bible, oil represents the Holy Spirit. In the prophet of Zechariah, he has a vision of these huge olive trees, and they're dripping oil into these massive bowls. And then Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So the oil is the Spirit of God. Half of these supposed disciples did not have any oil, did not have the Spirit of God. Again, they're gathered in the same place for the same purpose, dressed the same way. Here's what Jesus is communicating, I believe. Appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. We can show up, We can be dressed up. We can sit on the same pew. Appearances can be deceiving. You may not have any oil in your lamp. You may not have the Spirit of God residing within you, giving you life. You may claim, I'm waiting the appearing, but you're not ready. And I want you to mark this. Jesus is telling this parable to the (laughs) twelve. These would be his followers who gave up everything. These would be the ones upon whom the church would be expanded and grown. And he says, half of the bridesmaids weren't ready. Notice what happens next in the parable. Matthew 25, verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a cry. There's the midnight cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins, all ten, rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. 
They tried to borrow faith from others. The point is clear. You can't borrow somebody else's faith. I've had people come to me and say, you know, my granddaddy planted Ebenezer Baptist Church. You can't go to heaven on your granddaddy's coattails. I've had folks tell me my mama, she was the best Bible teacher. I mean, she taught Sunday school the same class for 45 years. Yeah, well, what about you? I've had husbands in this church tell me my wife is the godliest person I know. What about you? You can't go to heaven on somebody else's faith. You can't burn your lamp with somebody else's oil. Are you ready? You can be in the right place at the right time, dress right, say I long for his appearing. But if you don't have oil in your lamp, you're going to miss it. God has children. God doesn't have any grandchildren. On this last day, when Christ returns, I long to see you there. I think we're going to be holding hands. We'll fall down before the face of Jesus at the same time. And I pray all of you are there. And hear the words of our Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Friend, if you're not here today, depending completely on Jesus, his perfect life, his vicarious substitutionary death for your sins, his physical burial, his victorious resurrection from the dead, his majestic ascension, and his soon return, then today is the day of salvation. Don't trust in your granddaddy or your mama or your wife or your husband. Trust in Jesus. And that leads to my last thought. Are you prepared for the return of the king? Let's go to him in prayer.